Squibbling, whiz poppers, gobble funk, snaz cumbers. If these words are ringing a bell, it means that you are one of the many millions of people who have read Roald Dahl's The BFG. The BFG was published in 1982 and is one of the already wildly popular author's most popular works. It tells the story of a young orphan named Sophie who is taken from her bed during the witching hour one night by a big, friendly giant. Unlike other giants, the BFG doesn't eat children. He brings them their good dreams at night. He takes Sophie away with him to giant country, where they begin to learn about their differences, and even to appreciate them. Sophie decides that she can no longer stand by while the other giants eat children from around the world in the middle of the night, and she encourages the BFG to join her in a plan to seek help from the Queen of England in making that stop. Roald Dahl is a complicated, problematic figure, and like any of the throwback books we discuss on this show, the BFG is not without its complicated, problematic elements. We take a close look at these elements on episode 115, especially the way the book promotes certain racist, xenophobic ideas. We also talk about its more magical aspects, though, its inventive use of language, its charming and heartbreaking autobiographical elements, and the way it depicts dreams. Also, we love Sophie, and we think she's a feminist hero ahead of her time. I had such a blast recording this episode, and I am deeply desperate to become best friends with my guest. But seriously... Christina Hammonds-Reed holds an MFA from the University of Southern California's School of Cinematic Arts. A native of the Los Angeles area, her work has previously appeared in the Santa Monica Review and One Teen Story. The Black Kids is her first novel, and in the weeks since Christina and I recorded this episode, has become a New York Times bestseller. I'm pretty sure I'm Christina's number one fan, and I couldn't be happier for her. Plus, I'm reading The Black Kids right now, and it deserves every single accolade it's gotten. Follow Christina on Instagram at Christina Hammonds Reed. And big thanks to Christina for joining me on this episode. If you're not already, please be sure you're following along with SSR on social media. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find the show on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. There's a smaller, chattier Facebook group you might want to check out as well. It's called The SSR Podcast Community, and I would absolutely love to see you there. Okay, so I have a feeling that you're going to love this episode, and if you do, here's what would be awesome. The moment you decide you're loving it, take a screenshot of it playing on your podcatcher of choice. Post that screenshot to your Instagram story and tag SSRPod so I can see. Feel free to share any thoughts you have about the episode or to tell me what you're doing while you listen. This is a great way to share your feedback with me and to spread the SSR love at the same time. If you're looking for other ways to spread the SSR love, your next best bet is to post a five-star rating or review to iTunes. This is a quick process and really goes a long way toward helping people find their way to SSR. We are so close to 250 reviews on iTunes right now. I really love round numbers, so I would love to get there. Will your review push us over the edge? Thank you to everyone who's left a rating or review so far. If you want to take your SSR love a step further, you may want to check out our super cute bookmarks, stickers, tote bags, and t-shirts at www.ssrpodcast.com slash shop. You'll be able to rock your love for the podcast wherever you are. Go even one step beyond that by joining the Patreon community. Patrons contribute a few dollars every month to the production of the podcast in exchange for exclusive rewards that I know you're going to love. Think newsletters, bonus episodes, on-demand book recommendations, and the list goes on. And you can come on board for as little as a dollar per month. Go to www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page for more details. Feel free to send me an email or DM me if you have any questions about Patreon. And thank you so much to all of the patrons tuning in to episode 115. Before we venture into the wild world of the BFG, allow me to remind you about Libro FM. Libro FM gives you the chance to support independent bookstores instead of giant corporations when you buy audiobooks. The audiobooks are exactly the same as the ones you would purchase from those big guys, and they're the same price too. Plus, SSR listeners can cash in on a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro FM. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Once you're there, you can choose the independent bookstore that you'd like to support with your purchase. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old-school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. 
We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Christina. Welcome to SSR. Hello, hello. How are you? Great. Listeners, I'm just going to let you know ahead of time that Christina and I have just been chatting for like the last 15 minutes. We've never met before. We're already best friends. So if it sounds like we're best friends, it's just been a very fast friendship. We, I feel like we're already talking about accessories and MFA things. And if we don't talk about the BFG, sorry, but this could go in any direction. I'm here for it. There's no Let's telling. There's no yeah. telling. I'll element also, of surprise. Element of surprise is always good. I will tell you, <laughs> listeners, that Christina is sitting in front of the most beautiful floor-to-ceiling bookshelves. I'm so jealous. They're very <laughs> colorful, and it's giving me a lot of inspiration. It's my adult book nook. Like, I put it together, and, like, I need a space that's, like, a grown-up space for my books, as opposed to the Ikea bookshelves I got. I know. Mine are from Target, if I'm being totally honest. So it's, yeah. I, think, I think we got to move on. Yeah, it's like, okay. I mean, I still have them in my living room, but I need to, like, move on from those. Yeah, well, they mean This is something. my happy space. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I get that. I really do. Speaking of happy space, I know that Roll Dolls, the BFG, is a happy space book for a lot of people. This book has been requested by listeners for a really long time. There are a few people in particular I'm thinking of, and I'm sure you'll know that I'm talking about you, listeners, um, <laughs> who have, I've had side conversations with them about this book. I have a few teacher friends who are, like, passionate about sharing this book with their students. So I was feeling a lot of anticipation myself about coming back to it just because I'd heard from all of these adults that the BFG continues to mean so much to them. So I'm excited to break it down with you. Tell me why you picked this one. Well, I hadn't read it in forever, and I loved Roald Dahl as a kid. So I was just like, let me see. I love his, like, sort of dark approach to childhood storytelling and just the magic in the language and so I was like okay let's see how this is as a grown-up book and as something that I don't remember as well as some other books so that was the main reason I was like let's see let's go dark let's see how it is and let's see how it translates to 2020 you really (laughs) never spoiler alert (laughs) mixed mixed right mixed (laughs) exactly (laughs) I like what you said about not having as clear a memory of this one as maybe some of the other Roald Dahl books because I had a similar experience, but also I remember as a kid, I remember this being the last of the Roald Dahl books that I read because I read sort of your top hits. I read Matilda, I read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I read James and the Giant Peach, all of which we have actually covered on the podcast, so I'll include links to those episodes in the show notes for this one. So I read all of those, I think probably there were a few others in there, but I remember that the BFG was this like lingering to-be-read book, and a lot of my friends had read it. It was probably eight or nine by the time I got to it, and all of my friends loved it. And I remember, like, looking at the cover and hearing the title, and just seemed so vague. Um, so, in the same way that my what is this about? So, in the same way that my memory of it is very vague, I feel like my anticipation of reading it as a kid was very vague. If that makes sense, that does make sense. Okay, great. We're tracking. Um, it's not one of those covers where you're like, oh, I know what that's about. Right? No, not at all. And I think the notion that I had of it that was very blurry about it being a, a giant oriented book was mm-hmm. not really like that exciting to me as the kind of kid and the kind of yeah. reader that I was. Same here. Not just just not my thing. It felt scary. It felt I don't know. I think the other Roald Dahl books, while filled with their own sort of dark corners, there's like a sparkly element to them in some way. And I think a lot of that is because of the movies. And we had seen yeah. the we grew up with the movies, or I did at least, and so I could visualize the action. So it felt a little more shiny, I think, than the BFG. I agree. I think so. Yeah. So it took me a while to get to it. And then I remember reading it and I loved it. I I fully agree with my classmates that it was one of the best books I'd ever read. And then I just like forgot about it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Did not have a long shelf life in my memory. And even now as an adult, my memory of it, very vague. So I was curious if anything would sort of come to the surface as I started it, did you feel as you were getting back into it, like were things 
kind of like coming back to the service for you or did it feel like you had no idea what was going on? It felt like a mostly new experience except for the language. Like the language was the one thing that stuck with me, just sort of the inventiveness of it and Mm -hmm. like the snozz cumbers and like all of these things. Like I do remember that, but I didn't remember the basics of the plot and what was going on. And and so it felt like I was reading something anew, but with that level of language there, I'm like, oh yeah, that's what I gravitated towards in this book. Yeah, the language is really fun and it's really like Dahl at his best yeah. in terms of language. And I do want to note listeners before we go any further, I know that Roald Dahl is very problematic as an author. So I want to sort of couch all of our conversations with that kind of mm-hmm. asterisk that Roald Dahl is extremely problematic um, as a human being. And mm-hmm. none of my compliments to his writing or his inventiveness are in any way in an effort to excuse his behavior as a human being. So I I really want to make sure we mention that up top. I know that this is something that we deal with a lot on the show. It's one of the challenges of knocking the dust off of these old books. Exactly. So I just wanted to to clear that up front um, because he is a really special author. And whether we like who he is as a human or not, he's popular. The stats on this book are unreal. So it was published in 1982. I didn't realize it I didn't realize it was that late. So late. Yeah, which was 20 years after James and the Giant Peach, which was his first kid's book. It's pretty wild. Like, it had only been out for, like, 12 or, no, probably 15 years when I read it. Yeah, I did not realize it was that recent. Yeah, so one of his later books. And as of 2009, are you ready for this? Uh Uh-oh. 37 million copies. Wow. Yes, and still, it now continues to sell one million copies internationally every year. That's crazy. Isn't that insane? That's crazy. Other I'm very curious facts. about the stats from Matilda in uh, comparison. It's probably no, even more, right? Maybe. I, I imagine. don't remember. But what I did find is that so there is this 2012 list that I reference a lot on the show. It was put out by School and Library Journal. Um, it's the like 100 favorite kids' books of all time. So there are four Roald Dahl books on that list. And he's mentioned on that list more than any other author so that's kind of a cool distinction of his again separating him and his writing from like the human being and the bfg is number 88 on that list which is the lowest ranking of his four books Wow. So I would imagine that maybe the other three that are higher are like Matilda, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory Mm -hmm. and James and the Giant Peach would be my guess. I would think so too. So yeah, that's I, I would assume that the others sell more, but I just I could not get over those numbers. And this book is is held even closer to people's hearts in the UK. I was looking at just some of the like surveys and, and like the polls that have been taken in the UK about like the books that we love the most and this book is all over it. Really? So, that yeah. makes sense given how it ends. That makes perfect sense, right? Yeah, there's like a lot of British nationalism vibes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a lot. A lot. And also lot. like we hate other countries vibes. Uh, yes. Which yes. didn't love. Could've, a lot of colonialism. Yeah. Could have done without of- that. A lot of problematic content there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think we'll get to that. I did want to know another really interesting thing about this book. And I found I, I was really fascinated by the publishing history of it as I was researching. And I don't know if you know anything about this. So the book is is dedicated to his daughter who died when she was seven years old of measles encephalitis. And this is, I believe, like 20 years after she passed away, the book was written. And he went on to become like a very loud advocate for vaccines, which again, I'm not going to discuss it, but just kind of worth noting like how his life was impacted by the loss of his daughter. And there's a lot out there about how this book is is sort of his quiet autobiography and how Sophie is his daughter and he is the BFG. That makes sense. I read somewhere he's like 6'8", so it kind of makes sense that he would position himself as like the giant within the text and yeah. Sophie being his daughter. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah, and then there was this beautiful essay written by one of his daughters. I believe he had five children. One of his daughters is a screenwriter. And she wrote an essay um, in Time Magazine, and I'll link to all these essays and articles in the show notes, but she wrote this essay where she talks about how her dad was their BFG. And I guess every night before they went to bed, he told them stories about the BFG. And this is well before the book was published. And he told them that the BFG was the one who brought them their dreams. And I know I'm getting chills. And 
he also did this thing where I guess they would get into bed after after he told the stories. He would crack their window, and then every night he would go out and he had this like. I don't know, some long pipe that resembled oh, the, the trumpet. trumpet. And he would oh. stick it in their window every single night, Christina, and oh my blow into it, to, like, in the direction of both of them. And so it was this, like, family legend. So the BFG is really important to this family. She talks about how going to the set of the 2016 Steven Spielberg movie was, like, the best day of her life and how she, like, really felt her dad there. So I, I think that reading all of this stuff sort of complicated my feelings about him, too, because I was like, it, again, he sounds like he maybe was a cool dad and really made life kind of magical for his kids but mm-hmm. I just feel like it, it's a really fascinating reflection of who he is as a person especially because of the way the book finishes and similar to James and the Giant Peach we find out that the BFG like authored this book right under a pseudonym and there's also this sense that like the BFG is able to save Sophie in a way that like Roald Dahl wasn't able to save his daughter yeah Yeah. so it's kind of heavy and fascinating and beautiful all at the same time it enriches the text in a lot of ways having that sort of history of them as a family and him as a person right yeah I wish well also complicating our responses to it I think yeah I think it complicates my response to him but it makes me like the book more Mm -hmm. I wish I'd known all of that before I had Mm -hmm. no clue so yeah I would say Listeners, especially if you're considering rereading this book, I would highly recommend reading some of those essays because it does sort of round out the story a little bit. Anyway, I've been talking way too much, like, around the book. (laughs) Let's talk about the book itself. So we meet Sophie. She's seven, and she's in this orphanage in London. So many orphan stories we've talked about on the podcast. I used to love an orphan story growing up. Like, I don't know what it is. Why do kids love orphan stories? I was going to say, what do you think that's about? Like, right, like... Like I would, lo- I used to say, "Oh, I was adopted," or "Oh, these aren't my real parents," and my parents were lovely. And right. yet, <laughs> I had this like fascination with the idea of being an orphan, which of course is terrible for those people who did in fact grow up as orphans. But for whatever reason, like the English orphan story was what was up at a certain point in my reading. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've theorized about it a couple of times on the podcast, and. I actually have a new theory that just came to me based on the BFG. I don't think I've ever talked about this one before. Who knows? But my new theory about orphan stories is that maybe these orphan stories create this sense of possibility in like maybe being able to reinvent yourself. So a lot of times I talk about how I think the appeal of orphan stories is that there's this sense of independence and adventure and being unsupervised. But I think what we see in the BFG is that she, yes, has these adventures yes, goes to these fantastical lands, but what really appealed to me both as a kid and then even as an adult is later in the book where she gets to go and go to the palace and she's really treated like a princess. And that only happens in orphan stories. I mean, how many orphan stories have we read where it's like literal rags to riches and and that is only facilitated by a kid who starts out alone in the world. Yeah, it's true. It's absolutely true. And I think it sort of divorces you from all the history that you might have brought into a situation, right? Like whatever parental situation you have going into something, you're able to then envision yourself within this space as this character. Yeah, and we don't learn anything about her parents. No, not how they died or anything. No, and I think in James, like James and the Giant Peach, we know his parents had like a really gruesome death, I think. And we know that his parents were great. But we don't even know if Sophie's parents were nice or mean, which is kind of yeah. unique. Usually you know whether it's this like wistful situation where she had this idyllic childhood and then that was taken away from her or mm-hmm. if maybe she had a really rough time. We know nothing. So I actually hadn't thought about that, but that's a good point. Like we're really coming into Sophie's world with a fresh perspective. Eyes. Yeah, that's true. So she's in this orphanage and it's the witching hour. It's the middle of the night. She's awake, a feeling <laughs> that I can very much relate to. I haven't been <laughs> sleeping very well this week. And it's funny because I've been in that weird, like half asleep, half awake mode a lot this week me for too. some reason. It's very uncomfortable. That's been the entire pandemic for me. Like I'm a terrible sleeper in general, Same. but I think just something about being stuck in our houses and it's hot out and all of it just means... I like sleep for two hours and I wake up and I sleep for two hours and I wake up. Yeah. I don't think I've slept like soundly more than Mm -hmm. a handful of times. So I've been thinking a lot about like, okay, this is the middle of the night, kind of trying to imagine this time of the day when Roald Dahl is writing about Sophie's life changing when the BFG struts down the street, um, (laughs) kind of like plucks her out of her bed. So Sophie can see the BFG, which I think is like really 
interesting to note because he's never been seen by a kid before. Every single night he's out blowing dreams into their ears, into their brains with his trumpet. And it seems like he's been doing it for many years. I feel like often Mm -hmm. these characters are timeless. And so it could have been centuries that he's doing this. Sophie's the first one who's able to see him. And I think a lot of the book is about how the BFG can see things that a lot of others can't see. Yeah. But there's a lot that Sophie sees too. It's true. And I think Sophie kind of has the same elements of being the chosen one, Mm. like in the way that Charlie is, where you have, okay, Sophie is somehow the one who's able to see uh, the BFG, but also just how he kind of throughout the book is like, you human beings think blah, 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 but actually yada, yada, yada. And it's all about sort of what we see and what we don't see and, and how we deal with what we don't understand. So it's kind of interesting in that way that they both kind of come of age over the course of the book in terms of seeing and acting in that way, right? Yeah, I think that's definitely true. One of the things that kept coming up for me as I was reading was just this sense of like understanding the other. Yes, very much so. And in this situation, Sophie and the BFG are to each other very much the other. Um, They come from a very different place. They speak differently. They have different belief systems. They even have a different sort of moral code about what's right and wrong. And they are kind of, for the whole book, like, going back and forth trying to find common ground although it's they they are bonded fairly quickly but that doesn't mean that they understand each other right away right and it's i think how he frames it in terms of the bfg where sophie is coming at it from i think the reader's perspective more often than not in terms of language and how he's using language or not using language or like oh it's not okay that you eat human beings but he's like but we don't eat each other you guys hurt each other or what else did he say? Something else was like, oh, with the animals, you eat animals and you have no moral code around that. So it's so interesting how it looks at moral relativity within this space that's very fantastical. And it's like a childhood book that really is like not answering or not offering easy answers, right? Over the course of the text, it's like, well, what's right? What's wrong? And I would argue towards the end, it's a little less relative, but... It tries to, like, explore the gray area throughout, I think. I agree. I thought that that whole conversation between Sophie and the BFG was really interesting. And I don't know that as a kid I would have fully appreciated it, especially having read it alone. I think that would have been a really interesting book to read in a classroom. And so shout out to the teachers Mm -hmm. who are listening, who I know (laughs) read this book to their students. And I'd be curious to know if you have those kinds of conversations in your classrooms, because I do think that this question of moral relativity throughout the book is a good one. Mm -hmm. And that whole idea where the BFG is introducing to Sophie this idea that he has these other giants that he knows there are nine of them. They all eat humans. That's why they go out in the middle of the night is to pluck boys and girls from their beds and eat them. But the BFG is different because he goes out in the middle of the night. He does not eat humans. He's the equivalent of like a vegetarian. Um, And he just blows dreams into their ears and only good dreams it's important to know like he he gets rid of all the bad dreams that he finds so he's explaining to sophie that these giants go and eat humans and sophie is bothered by that as any seven-year-old would be and as most people would be i mean that's why we're afraid of giants like that's why (laughs) we're afraid of these mystical scary creatures that luckily we've never had to meet in real life and the bfg has this like very felt to me like this very mature conversation outside of the very dull language about how it's fine if you like you can judge us all you want but just so you know like your kind does way worse and he actually identifies humans which is true as the only species that kills its own with guns and bombs mm-hmm. which i thought was so direct and yes. and really like sort of an intense idea for a kid to wrap their mind around right and even when we get to the scene in the palace where they're trying to get like his his utensils for eating they have to wipe the blood of i forget which king it is but the blood of somebody who's been beheaded off the sword so it doesn't shy away from the ugliness of human nature throughout even as we're sort of getting towards the heroic elements of the story yeah i i was reading another essay i'm trying to see if i can find the quote that i pulled out from it but it was talking about how one of the things that doll is best at is showing kids that it's okay to see that adults are not always the best yeah yeah and he um he talks about sympathy for children and how in pretty much all of doll's books there are adults being terrible 
to children. And that's sort of at the micro level. But then to your point, you step back and and you can say like, oh, so there's also just this idea that there are a lot of adults in the world, big picture, who are doing bad things to each other and in a different way than maybe other species are. It's not survival when you're killing each other that way. It's not for food. Like you're it's a level of violence that other species have not explored yet. And so I think I think some kids will get that. I don't I don't know that all kids will get that, but as an adult I was like, wow, this is super powerful. Yeah. And I think kids pick up more than we think they do. Like I think that they even if they don't fully understand it, it's like there's something there where they're like, huh, I'm going to like think about that. And even if they're not like actively doing so, I think they still do. Yeah, I also I think that it it reminded me of other conversations that I've seen out in the world between cultures about like what's acceptable quote-unquote, and what's normal, also, quote-unquote, and what's not. And I'm not going to say whether that I agree with this argument, but one of the things that I I remember, this is, so I watch a lot of Bravo, as as my listeners (laughs) will know, love Bravo. And on The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, it feels so weird to even be, like, delving into this, but I need to set the context. In The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, there's the character Lisa Vanderpump, who is really big into animal advocacy and animal rights. And in pretty much every season of the show, there's an episode devoted to her events around stopping the Yulin Dog Meat Festival in China. Mm-hmm. And as an animal lover and as somebody who like would literally lay down my life for my golden retriever, um, I'm like, yes, like why would why is this okay? Like this shouldn't be allowed. But then I go online and I read think pieces where it's like you know, for for us as Americans to have all of this like splashy television around fighting something that is just not our cultural norm. Right. It's complicated. It's like more complicated than I can even begin to get into on on this episode. But I just wanted to share that as as sort of like a more adult real world example example of what I feel like Roald Dahl is getting at in this book. I agree. I think so. And I think with the BFG, even as a as a character, you could make the argument that as the other, you can kind of position him within, I don't want to say blackness specifically, but in terms of like language, for example, his language is not standard English. And the language of the giants isn't standard English. And the giants are kind of presented in that stereotypical savage way where they're wearing like the loincloths and they have big lips and they're more tanned than than others. So I think it's it's interesting sort of how that otherness works in the text. Like it's really complicated even within his own text because the BFG doesn't really need to be civilized. Like he, he isn't somebody who needs to be civilized. These other giants do. But then you also have this text that's very much about like, how do we appreciate the other as he or she is or they are? So there was so much going around with each scene. I'm just like, there there are so many layers to peel back here in terms of the writing, in terms of character and other, in terms of sort of, I want to say like the colonialism that you could, I think, read into it and and, and the monarchism. Monarch- yeah, I think that's the right that word. That sounds right. Yeah, something like that. Sure. Anyway, there's all of that going on in there that I think goes back to this idea of the other and like who's who is somehow valid or not valid. And he's really heavy-handed with that in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, too. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that book versus the movie. I mean, the movie <laughs> is not perfect either, but we spent a lot of time in reading that book earlier this year talking about the various iterations of the Oompa Loompas and mm-hmm. how, especially in their original imagining, it was just bad all around. Like, it was the colonial message of it. It was, it was. I mean, there were all, I believe the NAACP protested the book. Like, there were all of these organizations that were trying to actually boycott the movie. And so ultimately, the book had to make changes in order for all of these other things to fall into place. So, now that I think about it, like this seems sort of like a doll thing. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think he's also he's a product of his era, right? Like, yeah. I think that's he's a product of his era. He's a product of his country. Um, and I think it's important when we interrogate older texts to see how that's part of a larger system and not just individual behavior, right? Like, you you can say yes, okay, this person had racist attitudes, or this person was a racist or an anti-Semitist was possibly the case with him more likely than not but how does that function within the broader space within the broader society and how was that work informed by all of that right so there's so much to delve into in terms of history and where we are in history as he's writing these texts 
And I think even for kids, it's important to contextualize that when, when we're describing characters or even when he's describing the different nationalities of the different human beings, we're just like, oh no, this is awful. This is so bad. But it's also funny, right? Like it's, it's terrible, but from a purely linguistic perspective, there's a lot that's clever in it. And so I think we kind of have to, I think you can look at older texts and say, yes, there's problems in it, but also find what's valuable in it. Right. I totally agree with you. And that's why I do the podcast. So I'm so glad that you're on the same page. I think I have so many feelings about cancel culture. And I think that like, if I were somebody who bought into cancel culture, I wouldn't be able to do what I do on this show because I think that a lot of people have canceled Roald Dahl and that's anybody's right to do that. But I think that there's such room to have these kinds of conversations. I mean, you and I have been talking for almost 28 minutes about (laughs) this book and we really haven't even gotten into the nitty gritty of the plot. And that says so much about what we lose when we just sort of like hide these books and pretend that they never existed. Like there's real important, valuable conversation to be had about a book like this that is relevant to the BFG. Yes, but it's also relevant to other conversations that we're having in the world right now bigger picture so that's why I love doing this and it's hard it's not easy it it does require some mental gymnastics and Mm -hmm. it does require research and it's tricky but I think it's definitely valuable and I think it's valuable for teachers like going into it if you still want to teach doll if you still want to look at language and what's valuable in the text you don't necessarily have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You can go and say, hey, wait a minute, let's contextualize that this is racist. Let's contextualize that this is problematic. Let's contextualize the historical implications of why he's saying A, B, and C. And and it really can be a way that we can teach history too, right? Like I, I think it's, it's a way to teach history. It's a way to teach empathy and compassion to say, okay, why would we not do this now? Literature can be used for all of that, right? Like whether it's at the elementary school level or even in the graduate level, how we can say, what is the use of this book? And as long as we're teaching it with other texts, that's what's important. I think when you run into only teaching these texts, that's a problem. But when you bring in diverse lit and you bring in own voices stuff, then it makes it so that you have the space to really have these discussions and also have kids feel supported. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, while we're on this subject of the language he uses to talk about different countries and different people, I don't want to move on from that yet because I do think it's important to, to talk about a little bit more because the language around it is really kind of zany and fun, which is why <laughs> kids like it. And, and his word play and his ability to draw parallels between things that are serious and things that are silly and to make those connections is really unique to him. So Mm -hmm. this comes up several times. It comes up early in the book when the BFG is talking about how these other giants go out to every country in the world every night and find children to eat. And he's talking about how people from every country taste different, which is gross because like, no thanks. Um, (laughs) But he talks about how people in Greece are greasy and people in Turkey, I believe, like taste a little bit like Turkey. Like it's sort of very simple Mm -hmm. connections that he's making. And I I think it's very easy as an adult to be like, that's offensive. And, And it is. But to kid readers, that's just kind of, it's funny. Yeah. Or like the chili and how you need to like balance out the chili with the Eskimo. And like, once again, the language around all of it is terrible. So like he references the Eskimos and the Hottentots. So that's a problem. But also if you are purely divorcing it from the context of colonization and all of that, it's, it's, there's an entertaining wordplay that kids are, I think that's what they're grasping more than the other implications. So I think it's an opportunity to talk about these things and, and language and, and how it hurts too, right? Like you can you can very easily do that within the context of that as well. Just like, why might this language be hurtful? While also saying it's, I don't know, I'm glad I'm not having to teach this nowadays because I think it would be quite difficult. But I, I do think there's a lot to mine there. Yeah. And, and it's sort of a good geography lesson in a weird way, too, because there's so right. much conversation about different <laughs> countries and different governments that I would imagine mm-hmm. that it gives teachers a good opportunity, at least with a lot of these places, to be like, okay, great, look at this list of countries. Mm-hmm. Let's point them out. I don't remember reading that in a lot of books when I was growing up. So we get this conversation early in the book about these different tastes. And then later in the book, when we meet the queen and she's now getting in touch with the governments and the leadership of all of these countries to find out if they have had and experienced abductions of children in the middle of the night, that's a whole other 
round of sort of like political conversation. I mean, obviously none of it accurate and a lot of it offensive, but we're at least giving kids this sense of like a broader world, which I think is kind of cool. I feel like a lot of the books that I read as a kid, the world was very small. If it wasn't a fantasy book, at least like it was the town that the kid grew up in or they maybe went on like a road trip. So I do think it's neat that even though this book is fantastical, it exists in this broader real world, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. One of the mentions of another country that really bothered me that I wanted to call out was the queen calls the leader of a Middle Eastern country. I can't remember exactly which one it was. Because that's during the Baghdad section where like the wordplay is clever, but everything around it is horrible. It's horrible and it's so Islamophobic. Um, The idea Mm -hmm. basically is that the queen calls and is like, did you have any incidents last night? Mm-hmm. And the leader is like, oh, we have incidents constantly here. Like, I can't mm-hmm. even keep up with it. It's a disaster. Yes. Which completely, it silences the group of people in the Middle East and in Baghdad who are just living their lives, who are right. not in the midst of constant war. And I just think that that, for me, was like such an obvious example of Islamophobia in 1982. Right. And it was just interesting to me, like seeing how our history with the Middle East has unfolded since then. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that this was in a book written all those years ago kind of blew my mind a little bit. I mean, it shouldn't have, but it, it was so blatant that I, yeah. I was surprised. Yeah, that one stuck out a lot because it, it was sort of this gut punch of that is super offensive. And then you have the clever of the bag the dad the mom and you're just like damn it <laughs> right? right it's 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 just it's one of the painful things about certain texts where you're just like there's something that's really clever and then you just have this moment where you're like this is super offensive and hurtful to any child reading it who would come from a cultural background that is referenced in these ways so the entire book had so much of that where you're just like this is super smart and yet as a child reading it how would i interpret it within today's context, which is interesting as well, I think. Like, if, if you are from Chile, or if you're from Greece, or if you're from one of these places, how are you then viewing yourself or not viewing yourself within this text, even as you might be entertained by it? Yeah, and the way he blends these real-life countries with a fantasy, I do think, is unique, too, and that almost complicates it, because it's like, these are real countries, but he's not telling a real story. You know, it, right, I don't know, it makes exactly. it, blur, it blurs it somehow. Mm-hmm. And we have these very problematic, outdated, offensive, never-should-have-been-appropriate ideas baked into it, too. So it's it just makes it really hard to untangle it all. But I, I do think it is interesting to to see how he the book is both grounded in again these like very specific governments and mm-hmm. like out of nowhere in the fact that they're also spending time in giant country and I liked that like I do think that that's kind of a cool strategy for a book like this where I always find that in any fantasy story it's nice to have some grounding mm-hmm. and this is like an extremely grounded book in a lot of ways it is it very much is the fact that you feel like oh we are located in this part of London right now and the giants are going to this part of this country to go eat the children like you don't like you said you don't really get that a lot in fantasy where you feel that sense of place throughout the book but you also have the fantastical sort of giant world that just happens to be off the atlas in the two pages designated for such things i loved that detail that was like one of my favorite things in the whole book so listeners while the Queen's, like, Air Force is there in helicopters trying to go pick up these giants and, like, basically hide them from everyone for the rest of ever. You have this sort of comical moment where, like, they're trying to find giant country on a map, even though the BFG is like, you're not going to find it on a map, it's not there. And the pilot is like, oh, it's probably on these two blank pages, like, in the back of the, of the, of the atlas. Like, that's why these two pages exist in every atlas that's always, so you can create your own land. And I did that. I do think that's a fun touch for kids because it's like the power of imagination like if you have an atlas at home you can fill in whatever country or whatever land you want I was a kid who for some reason I was obsessed with my atlas for a while like one of my birthday parties was (laughs) geography themed (laughs) I love that (laughs) I think it was like my ninth my eighth or ninth birthday because my grandmother gave me this um you know, those like now DK makes them, but those like beautiful illustrated atlases <laughs> for kids. And, and it was really interesting because it had the maps and then it also would show you like the food from each country and the <laughs> culture of each country. And I just I poured over this thing and I thought it would be a great idea for my mom to throw me a geography 
birthday party. Um, but anyway, I would imagine <laughs> that if I read this book and read that passage when I was a kid, I would want to go get my own atlas and be like, okay, let's find those two blank pages and fill them in. Mm-hmm. It's fun. It's such a stimulant for imagination in kids, right? Yeah. I love it. I love that, It almost reminds me of this thing we did with Girl Scouts where we had one of these, like, international days where you got to sort of go from booth to booth and dress up in different cultures, usually your own, or you had, like, a designated country. Did you ever do scouting? I did, but we we were like, I'm sorry, Mom, if you're listening, because my mom was my Girl Scout leader. We did. <laughs> she knows that we were, we were like, not the um we weren't doing girl scouting like the right way like we got all the badges (laughs) about like skincare and crafts and the one time we went camping we went and like stayed at a farm and were in beds inside that's hilarious so we didn't really do a lot of the activities that I think other scouts do but I would love to hear more about your international day I think that's kind of what I had envisioned my geography birthday to be but it sounds like it. it I don't know that I quite got there but we tried like I think we got like takeout dumplings and like take out tacos and in hindsight there was probably some appropriation and, and inappropriate I don't know I don't want to say inappropriate behavior but there was definitely like a lack of understanding of the authenticity of some of these cultures but yeah. I was I was authentically very interested in learning yeah. for whatever that's worth well and I think that now you know right like yeah. it's, life is a process of learning and when you get older you sort of you meet friends from different places and you're like okay that's not authentic but should I for whatever reason, do this again, you can do it differently. Well, if I have another geography birthday and you're invited, <laughs> we'll I make come sure. To that. It will be fun. <laughs> we'll make sure that it's all very authentic and um, and we'll we'll talk about it on Insta story so everybody knows about it. Don't yes. worry. So we're honoring all of the cultures that, that we're representing. <laughs> exactly. One of the other blurred lines that I found a lot in this book and, and that I was reading about in sort of the literature around it is how Dahl really blurs the lines between horror and fantasy in this book, which I thought was interesting. And then I was watching the trailer for the 2016 Spielberg adaptation. And I think that that two minutes and 15 second video does a really great job of showing that that blending because in the first few seconds, you have this like very scary moment of like the giant hand coming in to the orphanage and then you're kind of bouncing back and forth from those kinds of dark images that are actually dark you know it's very Mm -hmm. like gray and spooky to these like really beautifully designed gorgeously animated visuals of the bfg in a really colorful and interesting other world and i think that for me like as a kid the idea of a book about a giant felt like horror and then I read it and it felt more like fantasy, which is probably why I liked it. But as mm-hmm. an adult, I do feel like it's it's more of a blend than anything. Yeah. Although I feel like that's all of Doll's books, right? Like all of them blend sort of horror and the fantastical in this really interesting way. As a kid, I was super attracted to the darkness in them. Like I guess the, the horror of certain aspects of these books but there's enough light and levity at the end of it, usually, where you usually have this, like, victorious kid who not everything's, like, perfectly okay, but at the end, the kid's the kid's okay. Like, and I think that's something that's interesting for kids to learn, too. Like, there can be this, like, really dark shit in the world, right? But at the end, hopefully, you kind of make it out okay. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. I think kids can handle that more than people think they can. And Sophie definitely made it out okay. Sophie is living in a cottage at Buckingham Palace. Yeah, Sophie is living her best life by the end of the book. (laughs) She's great. She's, like, living the ultimate fantasy for a seven-year-old, I think. Right. Um, And she's very brave. Like, I love how brave Sophie is. I love how brave Sophie is. So let's talk about the fact that it was Sophie's idea to try to save the world's children to begin with. Because the BFG has kind of given up. He's like, okay... These other giants, they just eat people. That's what they do. I'm sorry. There's nothing that can be done about it. And Sophie's like, "Mm, I I think there has to be a way because I can't stand by. Like, now that I know this, I can't allow it to keep happening. So she is the Mm -hmm. one who really, like, pushes the BFG to plot with her. And they create this whole plan where the BFG is going to use his dream-giving abilities to put this nightmare in the mind of the queen so that she can kind of like visualize what's actually going on in the real world but none of that would have happened if not for Sophie right and I think it's kind of funny because as much as we've talked about how problematic the sort of the racial aspects of the book are Sophie's very like a progressive almost 
feminist protagonist. I mean, not quite, because the BFG is always sort of dismissing her in ways that are questionable. But she's really proactive. She's not just waiting and saying, hey, let's just see what happens. She's like, no, we have to do something about this. And she puts herself in danger, even with like the big scary giant. She's like, it's okay, I can do this, let me be resourceful. When she crawls into the snozcumber, like, she's a smart plucky heroine in a book written by a dude, which is always a very fascinating sort of thing, right? I think so. And she, in the end, is the only one who seems to be able to take down that giant giant, the flesh lump eater. Yes. Because he's, like, out of control, and she sneaks in and bites him on the ankle, and they trick him into thinking that he's been bitten by a snake, and, uh... But it's the brooch. <laughs> yeah, it's just her. She's, like, back there, like, biting him, sticking his brooch in. Like, she's just handling it, and she figured that out all by herself. So I agree with you. I think that she's she's a little bit of a feminist heroine at a time when there wasn't that a wasn't lot of that. Yeah, I think she's really cool. And I, I think that there's a message there about the importance of standing up to the big guy, whatever the big guy looks like in your life. Um, I yeah. think there is a strong anti-bullying message in this book because it is really heartbreaking to see the BFG being tossed about being taunted by the other giants yeah you feel so bad for him and then i think it's also really badass that she takes him out with a brooch like this very feminine piece of jewelry from the queen like there's something about that in and of itself it's not a sword it's not a knife it's a brooch which i find so delightful that she plucks it from her dress and is ready to go with it that is i hadn't thought about that but that symbolism of there's something in that symbolism of that that's i think important yeah I love it. Well, this you, this is going to throw you off and disappoint you, but Sophie was originally going to be a boy. Of course. No. I'm sorry. No. That's always that way. She was supposed to be a boy named Jody, and then no. Roald Dahl's first grandchild was a girl named Sophie, and so he changed it because of the personal nature of this story he oh which like look i hate that the original plan was for the main character not to be a feminist hero mm-hmm. but at least he changed it and was open to changing yeah. it i, I think know. it worked out right i think so i think i think and how would a boy have done that like it's, it's sort of interesting how that also then colors the story that whole brooch situation would have been very different had it been a male protagonist instead of a female protagonist so yeah, I wonder where he was in the writing process when he made yeah. that decision. I, I'm sure you as an author are like, oh, <laughs> did you have to rewrite the whole thing? Yeah. <laughs> or even something about like her empathy feels very feminine. Not to say that boys can't have empathy, obviously, but something about how she kind of approaches things feels in a lot of ways very feminine or the way she sort of reasons through what needs to be done or how it could be done it isn't like oh let's go out and act it's like okay let's be thoughtful about how to make the queen envision what could be happening right like there's there's so much that's cool about her being a female protagonist she's very creative also yeah which i thought was fun i agree i appreciated that about her We, we haven't talked at all about the whole dream aspect And that is a really special and important element of this book. So I I definitely want to touch on that before we start to wrap up. So the BFG's nighttime activity, as we've mentioned, is that he is the guy who goes out in the world and gifts children with their dreams. And he does so with a trumpet that he like actually physically puts the dream into and then he blows it out of the trumpet into their windows. (laughs) How did you process that piece of the book as an adult? Oh, I loved it. I love the magic in it. I love just sort of the whimsy in it, right? Like, there, there's so much that's beautiful. And as somebody who has very, very vivid dreams and nightmares, I appreciated that as much as an adult, too. I think more so than I would have even as a kid. And what dreams say about us and what we desire and what we want. And there's just so much that's lovely about that passage. Although there was a whole section where he's talking about boy dreams versus girl dreams. And as I'm reading it, I'm like, oh my God, these could totally be girl dreams. Why are we trying to designate and say that only boys want to like stand on the ceiling and be like, (laughs) you're driving me up the wall, right? Right, like in your head, you're your editor and you're like, cut, cut, Right, or just like this can be, (laughs) they're they're gender neutral dreams. We don't need to have that. But once again, it's a product of its era. Mm -hmm. But there was just, there's so much that's magical in that and, and just really beautiful, right? Yeah, and it does make you think about where dreams come from. And of course, we know scientifically, I guess, that our <laughs> dreams are rooted in our subconscious. And and often you can trace your dreams to something that you were thinking about that day or something that you were worried about coming up the next day. But sometimes I have a dream and I'm like, I have no idea where that came from. Right. It came out of literally nowhere. And I guess maybe that's where some force like the BFG could come in. 
Yeah. Although I think it's interesting, too, that all of those dreams were about heroics, right? Like, it almost, in some ways, foreshadows what's to come. Because a lot of those dreams were like, oh, I, I grew a beard and all the other boys thought I was so cool. Or like, oh, I did this and everybody was happy that I'd saved whatever. So I guess that's sort of the adventures that, that are inherent in, in how children view the world. But also it seems like there's a lot of drive to be the hero that I think young people have too, right? To sort of be proactive and, and making the world better, or other people better, or saving other people. Saving your teacher from drowning. <laughs> Do you have those kinds of dreams? Like, are you the hero in your dreams? No. I'm terrified usually in my dreams. I know. Well, I guess it's more my nightmares. Sometimes, I guess, but not often. I think, for example, last night I had a whole nightmare about a big earthquake because I live in earthquake country. And this is not uncommon, but it's all just about like, where's everybody I love? I need to go find them. I need to make sure they're all okay. So I guess I'm not quite a hero, but I'm also not not the hero. I'm just like, I just need to make sure everybody's okay. You're just like living your life concerned. Right. Pretty much. I had this whole conversation with my husband a couple of years ago where we were talking about how I think, so when I dream, I'm always like in my body, like I'm still seeing things from my perspective. Uh-huh. He told me that a lot of times when he dreams, he's watching himself. I have that. You do? A lot. A okay. lot. It depends on the dream, but certain dreams I'm watching myself act and other dreams I'm in my body. So it depends on like the amount of terror in the dream, but... It's fascinating when it switches between the two, right? Yeah, it is. Well, and he told me he is often the hero in dreams. And I do think, and again, not to say that like certain dreams can only be boy dreams and certain can only be girl dreams. I do think maybe there's something in like the conditioning, at least that we were all brought up with in Mm -hmm. our generation that I would imagine like a lot of the pop culture he consumed as a kid was about like fighting the bad guy and being the hero and you know like saving the day Um, and that just wasn't really my experience with pop culture growing up so I do think maybe Mm -hmm. there's something to the conditioning of of how we all have internalized that in our dream life. And I think that goes back to storytelling, right? Like how stories impact how we view ourselves. So it's all connected. If what you're seeing are boys saving the world or what you're reading is that, then that's how you're going to view yourself. Yes. One other thing that I found fascinating in the research that I was doing this morning before we started talking that I, I sort of wanted to close out our conversation with is this idea that the BFG is kind of this weird depiction of of being a writer. Um, and so I wanted to share a couple of excerpts from this essay I found. It's, it's in Medium or on Medium, and I'll be sure to link to it in the show notes for this episode. But here are a few things that I pulled out. The author says, But in Dahl's tall tale, it needs to be remembered, the BFG is a giant exception. It is not only that he is a vegetarian among his cannibal cohort, but that he is a writer and the author of this book. In fact, the novel presents in fantasy terms a wonderful explanation of what writers do. The BFG spends time in dreamland netting dreams, placing them in jars, labeling their contents, later mixing them with others, then traveling to the human world where he uses a trumpet-like device to blow these dreams into the bedrooms of sleeping children where they are inhaled and gloriously unfold in their minds. I can't think of a better or more poetic way of describing to the young what writers do. And the BFG is different from you and me because he can hear the secret whisperings of the world. Because he has exceptionally large ears, he can hear what each dream <laughs> says and discriminate between them. The author goes on to say, if writing is the mixing of dreams and their delivery, then in the last pages, the BFG comes to the rescue. He mixes a dream for the Queen of England that tells her about the gang of giants and their nocturnal abductions. And this prompts Her Majesty to call out the army and the Air Force to trap the miscreants and imprison them. So I, I just think it's really, like, it was very thoughtful examination of the parallels between the BFG and Roald Dahl and and maybe how the author was trying to like express some of how he felt as as a writer especially of children's books I love that I think it's so pretty it's such a pretty way of articulating and it's such a thoughtful way of articulating it and I think it also in terms of how we talk about kids lit nowadays it's it's important and that authors can help kids see themselves in books right like I think that's super important that moving forward we have voices from all different kinds of perspectives who can help kids see themselves as heroes or can help see themselves in literature and and the author as having that capacity is is just such a lovely thing i like to envision myself with a horn (laughs) i'm gonna envision you that way as i'm reading your book just like you know putting putting your book in your trumpet and gently 
sending it out into the world so that people can really get it ingrained in their brains. <laughs> On the whole, did the experience of coming back to Roald Dahl's the BFG, did it disappoint you or did the rereading experience kind of hold up based on what you remembered about it from when you were a kid? I think it was mixed because I think I kind of expect and anticipate that older texts will have things that I find personally offensive or problematic, which it did. But I also just really love the language and the way the BFG sees the world and, and, and how he plays with language throughout. And Sophie as this proactive female protagonist, there is so much that I loved about it while also finding so much that I was just like, oh my God, this is horrible. And I and I, I find myself often thinking as a child of color in a classroom, how would I interpret certain things? So having been that child, I'm like, ooh, I, I, I empathize with those kids who are reading this text and, and saying, oh, but like, that's kind of messed up. That's not who I am. That's not comfortable. While also saying, hey, wait, but there's there's a lot of really great storytelling throughout. So it was definitely a mixed bag. But I think that's what I anticipate when I read classics in that way. So it wasn't shocking. What was shocking was how much I enjoyed it. (laughs) Well, that's good. And you weren't enraged. You were pleasantly surprised by maybe the experience part of it. While also annoyed by the things you knew you were going to be annoyed about. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of stuff right now. Like, because I did English as one of my majors, like half of doing it is just you take it and you learn from it. and, And you say, we don't do this in the future, but we can examine what's there. I personally think. Yeah, I agree. And I think most of the books you read for the podcast are a mixed bag. So that sounds about right to me. Other (laughs) than the BFG, what have you been reading lately? That's maybe less of a mixed bag that you've really enjoyed and that you would recommend to our listeners. Oh, so I did not read a lot of YA actually before becoming a YA author. I grew up very much reading adult books. I felt like I went through a phase where I read kid books and then all of a sudden it was a quick and swift transition to adult books. Me too. And I think that's just because YA wasn't like as, it wasn't a thing when I was growing up in the way that it is now. So I've been really enjoying the beauty of some of the writing in YA. Like I just read The Poet X not too long ago and I was like, oh my goodness, she's a beautiful writer. Her language is gorgeous throughout this text. And it's also kind of this very pretty poetic look at girlhood. And same with Long Way Down by Jason Reynolds. I was just blown away by this takes place in one elevator ride. And once again, the language is so poetic and there's like such a fantastical element to it. On the adult side, I just finished Luster and have been raving about it like most adults I know right now. (laughs) Um, I think it's kind of a fresh take on Millennial trying to find her way in the city and having at one point been that. (laughs) I got it and was like, oh, I I understand. there's just so much that's good right now. I yeah. feel like we've had like just this this embarrassment of riches over the course of the last few months with book releases. I agree. So I, I've been pleasantly surprised by all the books that have been coming out this year and new voices and fantasy that's coming out. Like I don't normally read a lot of fantasy, but there's stuff that's coming out soon where I'm just like, that's really great. And I love that I can now see girls as the protagonists or black girls as mermaids or whatever the case may be. Like there's so many cool things. So I am loving reading right now. And since we're in a pandemic and there's nowhere to go anyway, it's just that much more time to sit in my room and read. Yeah. It's kind of an introverted bookworm's dream. Right. Like I could sit outside and read if I want to get a little bit of sun, but in general, it's it's fun. I agree. I agree. And I I think all of those recommendations are great. And I will include links to them in the show notes for this episode, as well as a link to the BFG and a link to your book, The Black Kids, which I've heard Mm -hmm. nothing but amazing things about. I am (laughs) excited to read it myself. I will be sure to have read it by the time this episode drops. I also have to say it's one of my favorite covers I've seen in a really long time. Oh, it's incredible. They killed it with that cover. I love it so much. It's It jumps out anytime I see your book, even in a photo of like 10 other books. Your book is the one that jumps out. And I'm not just saying that because I'm talking to you. (laughs) I absolutely love the cover of that book. They did an amazing job. I I love that cover. I want to have it blown up and like put on my wall somewhere. It's so pretty. You should for your adult book nook. I think I will. I'm going to, I think. It's art. 
It is. And and she's so talented. I love the woman who designed it. Like, there's just so many great women did so much to make this book what it is. I'm, I'm very thankful to that. And like female empowerment and solidarity. <laughs> yeah, I love I love to hear that behind the scenes. Well, it was so fun talking to you, Christina. It was so nice to meet you. I'm so glad that we got to talk. I know. I feel like we could have kept talking forever and ever. <laughs> I know. I know. I agree. Well, I hope you have a great rest of your night. It was so nice to meet you. And thank you so much for reading the BFG with me. Thank you for having me, Allie. I appreciate it. Bye. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.